Only God can rescue us from the pain of this world. The world is a broken place, and uh, our job is to be the light and the hope for people in these times. And so if you'll go to the Lord in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you with heavy hearts as people across this nation are in pain and sorrow and mourning. Lord, we recognize that this is a fallen world it's not the world that you originally designed, but it's the world that, that we live in. Um, Lord, we just pray uh, that you would allow us to be hope and light and bring grace to those that are suffering and that are hurting, Lord. We pray that when they look to us, that we wouldn't be encouraging the argument, but that we would be turning people back to the only uh, source of healing, the only source of hope, the only path to really figuring out how to get through this is you and your son. So Lord, we pray that um, you would use us, use us to bring love. Lord, we pray this as your son taught us to pray when he said, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning, we're, we're continuing our sermon series on John and we'll be in the 15th chapter of John, starting in verse 18 says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I have not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. The word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time that we can come together around your word. We pray that you would uh, let us understand and grasp it with our minds and our hearts, that we would be changed by it. I pray that you would give me uh, the words to say about the difficult and challenging passage, Lord, to be with me in this moment. Uh, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I want to jump just, just right into our passage. I want to get right in there. For the next, for this last several weeks, we've been in this larger section on the Gospel of John called the Upper Room Discourse. It's Jesus sitting down with his disciples one last time before he's arrested and crucified. And this teaching covers a whole number of subjects. The smaller passage that we're looking at today 
There, Jesus is trying to set some expectations for his disciples about what's going to happen when he leaves them. So he's just told them, hey, guys, I'm going. I'm about to be gone. And this passage is him going, I want you to have some healthy expectations about what's going to happen to you when I go. Expectations are really important in life, aren't they? And he he wants them to know, guys, look, things aren't going to be easy. And so as he sits down in this evening, this night, the night where he's about to be arrested, looking at his 11 disciples, Judas has already left those 11 faithful disciples, his 11 closest friends. He warns them with this, starting in verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. In John, the term the world, cosmos, it often means all people who who don't know Jesus, all people who don't know God are separated from God, anything and anyone opposed to God. And Jesus is telling his disciples in this passage, guys, the world hates you because it opposes me. Verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. In this verse, Jesus sets up a very clear distinction between the world and him. Either you love the world, you belong to it, or you love him and you belong to him. Those two sides are opposed. There's not a middle ground. Jesus' message begins with this claim that every person is sinful, every person is broken, every person needs redemption before their creator, and Jesus is the only way to that redemption. There is no other, and that's not a message the world wants to hear, is it? And so those who carry out this message, Jesus' disciples, they are inevitably going to be opposed because of that message. Verse 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Jesus says, guys, look, if you're going to follow me, you should be expecting to be treated like me. Jesus' disciples should expect to be treated like Jesus. And if we look back at where we've gone in the gospel of John, We've seen Jesus treated in some some bad ways. He's been mocked. He's been called names like demon-possessed. He's been plotted against dishonestly, unfairly. And now as he speaks these words, he's just a couple hours away from being arrested. He's less than 24 hours away from being crucified. His hands and feet nailed to a cross to bleed and suffocate to death. Why would we think that God would spare us from the very things he did not spare his own son from? As Jesus' disciples, we have to expect to be treated like him. We should expect to be mocked. We should be expected, we should expect to be called names, to be plotted against, and to even die for our faith if the time and place came. Verse 21. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus' disciples will be persecuted because of their 
faith in Jesus and the Father who sent him. There's a cosmic battle that few of us fully realize is going on all around. The enemy, the devil, hates God, hates Jesus, but can do nothing to actually hurt him directly. But what's the easiest way to hurt a parent? It's to hurt their kids, right? And so Jesus' followers, God's children, should expect to be opposed by the enemy. In these verses, uh, there's just one clear message Jesus wants to get across to his disciples. There's one expectation. Guys, you're going to face opposition. Expect opposition. Don't be blindsided by it. I don't want it to surprise you. When I go, you guys have have to have this this expectation that you're going to face opposition to your faith. Now, it's not that Christians seek opposition, but that all Christians must view opposition as the expectation, not the exception. That's what we find if we look back through these verses. Verse 19, the world hates you. Verse 20, they well persecute you. 21, they well treat you this way. In the next chapter, Jesus is going to come back to this very same idea. In John 16, 2, he says, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. 16, 4, I warned you about them. And in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus' disciples should expect, we should expect to face opposition to our faith. And this message is continued throughout the New Testament epistles. Some of those same guys who sat there listening to this wrote about it years later. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ Don't be surprised. Opposition isn't strange. 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus' disciples should expect opposition in our faith. And today around the globe, millions do. This is Sada. She's from Uganda. She lives in a small a Muslim village named Dwight. And in 2014, Sada heard the gospel for the very first time. She went to this Christian rally. She heard the gospel. She trusted Christ. She came home, and her father found out. And so he beat her with a club, dropped her off at a hospital, horrible injuries, and left a note with the authorities officially disowning her as his daughter. This is Malad Zaki, his mom. Malad is in uh, the picture she's holding. In February of 2015, in a beach in the middle of nowhere in Libya, Malad and and 21 Christian men were executed for their faith in Jesus. As Malad was about to die, he and others whispered, repeating, Lord Jesus Christ. For the last 2,000 years, Christians have faced opposition to our faith. Now, a lot of us have heard the stories of the first 300 years, those early years under Roman oppression when it was illegal to be a Christian. 
when some Christians were burnt for being Christians. But few of us fully realize just the level of opposition and persecution that's happening around the globe today. Millions of Christians like Sada and Malad face violent persecution right now. The International Society for Human Rights estimates that 80% of all religious freedom violations in the world today are directed against Christians. As we talk right now, tens of thousands of Christians are in concentration camps in North Korea because of their faith. Countless Christians living in Islamic countries fear for their life, even from their own family, every single day. Millions of Christians right now live with the daily expectation of exactly what Jesus was talking about in John 15, opposition and worse. But how about us? Most of us will never face that violent persecution that Malad and Sada have faced and that millions of others do. But do we expect opposition to our faith? Or do we feel entitled to live a quiet, comfortable life? We live in a, a time of transition in our, in our nation where the fastest religious group are the nuns, those with just no faith at all. And in the years to come, as our country most likely shifts away from being a country primarily led and populated by Christians to one that is increasingly secular, we should expect that Christian values, beliefs, and practices will increasingly be opposed. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't feel strange. We should expect and already do to face a silent repression where we're pressured to relegate our faith to a private matter with no public expression and no public relevance. In the years to come, we will increasingly be faced with the reality that Jesus' disciples need to expect opposition. The question is, how do we handle this inevitable opposition? Well, there's no perfect recipe. Jesus doesn't give us a seven-step plan in these verses, and we face opposition in such remarkably different ways. I know over the last year, I've had friends face opposition in their faith in such different ways. For one friend, his boss forbid him from signing his name with a cross after it as he had done for just years and years. Another friend was called a a derogatory name after expressing a biblical view on uh, human sexuality. Another friend, a student, was told by his biology teacher that Christians are idiots. Because it comes in such remarkably different forms, there's not a seven-step plan for facing opposition in our faith. But as we watch Christians in our nation struggle to respond to opposition, we can begin to identify some reactions that we really want to avoid. I think each of us naturally has one of at least three unhealthy reactions to opposition to our faith. So this morning I want to explore three unhealthy reactions we often find ourselves defaulting to when we face opposition in our faith. And as we look at these, we want to ask ourselves, which ones have I defaulted to? Which one of these feels most natural to me 
when I face opposition in my faith? First reaction some of us have to opposition is to conform. To conform. To bow the knee to peer pressure or cultural norms or expectations of people we really want to please. I've got a friend who, even just four years ago, was a Christian who was really doing his best to, to stick to Scripture. And last fall, I had, I had coffee with him downtown, and there was, there was this one issue he had kind of always struggled with and wavered on, and three years ago, he decided to conform to the cultural view, and ever since that decision, he had slowly slipped away from Jesus, until I'm looking at him across this table, sipping coffee, and he's saying things to me like, I don't know if Jesus is the only way, and... I'm not sure if I'm really a Christian anymore. What had started as one compromise, conforming on one issue, had ended in him abandoning faith. Opposition creates an uncomfortable tension, doesn't it? No one likes, we shouldn't like opposition. It's uncomfortable. Those bent towards conformity, like my friend, are are usually people who care deeply for others. And in trying to resolve that uncomfortable tension with others they love, they often compromise biblical beliefs when they come into conflict with societies. So the conformist faith is seldom criticized because their God has been reshaped to fit cultures. But this conformity reveals we've forgotten. Jesus' disciples, we should expect opposition, not conform to get rid of it. We need to seek only God's approval, not conform to gain the approval of the world. So if your natural bent is to conform when you face opposition to your faith, store these verses in the back of your mind. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And remember, opposition to your faith isn't a tension to get rid of through conformity because Jesus' disciples should expect opposition in our faith. The second reaction many of us have to opposition in our faith is to fight, to fight. When I was in college, there was a a judge's decision in a a state court that a lot of Christians had disagreed with. And the next day, I'm walking across campus. I'm right in the middle of the most busy intersection in campus, and there's this guy standing on a concrete block, and he's just yelling. So I kind of get closer to to hear what he's yelling, and he's yelling just words of judgment in the name of Jesus. There are these students who gathered around him, and they're yelling back. It was a very, very ugly situation. This man felt an opposition to his faith, and his his reaction started with anger and outrage, that that opposition just shouldn't exist, and so his reaction was to fight. Now, that's an extreme example. Probably none of us were standing on a concrete block this last week yelling at anyone, but Many of us have this default to fighting back in more subtle ways, but that fight reveals we've forgotten. Jesus' disciples should expect opposition in our faith, not be outraged by it. Opposition isn't strange. 
So we shouldn't fight it as if it shouldn't exist. Jesus is not gonna reward us for being rude or obnoxious, is he? No one's heart's changed by an outraged sign and an angry Facebook post or a ballot box. Our, our reaction to opposition, it can't start with anger and a fight. If your natural bent when you face opposition to your faith is this, the second one, to, to fight back, store these verses in the back of your mind. 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 24. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments <clears throat> because you know they will produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And remember that opposition to our faith isn't a strange situation to fight against because Jesus' disciples should expect opposition. Third reaction some of us have to opposition is to withdraw. To withdraw. When I was a kid, we would drive a couple hours in the Missouri and every summer to visit the, an Amish community there. And, and I just remember being so fascinated by them setting up their own, own world, kind of in the middle of nowhere, mostly, mostly I remember the pie. But uh, <laughs> it always fascinated me how they set up their own world. And, and the Amish are an example of this default to withdraw. Instead of face opposition to the world, this group of Christians have chosen to just totally withdraw from it. And there are many of us who react to opposition in our faith in a very simple, similar way. We withdraw. If this is your natural reaction to opposition, you might find that you just don't have a lot of friends who aren't Christians. You might find that thinking back to that time around the water cooler at work when someone said derogatory things about Christians that you simply and silently retreated back to your office. Your faith isn't asked about or criticized because you're too fearful to make it known. But this withdrawal reveals we've forgotten. Jesus' disciples should expect opposition to our faith, not avoid it by withdrawing. And what should really alarm us isn't the uncomfortability and presence of opposition. What should alarm us is if we can't think back to a time when we have not been opposed in our faith. If you can see yourself in this category, if your natural reaction when you face opposition is just withdraw, maybe there's a little fear there, maybe there's a little separation, you withdraw. Store these verses in the back of your mind. Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Let your light shine before others. Philippians 1, 27 to 28. Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one faith uh, of the, the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Stand firm. Don't be frightened. Let your light shine for the gospel. Remember, opposition to our faith, isn't something to withdraw from, but something to expect. We each have a, a natural reaction 
what we've kind of caught ourselves doing when we face opposition to our faith in life. Some of us conform, others fight, some withdraw. What have you seen yourself normally doing? Each actually stems from the same problem. They express themselves very differently, but each stems from the same problem. Each treats opposition as something surprising, something strange, something to get rid of, forgetting that Jesus' disciples should expect it. And in doing so, each one of these three misses the blessing that opposition has for the believer. Do you hear that? Doesn't sound right, but the Bible speaks of opposition as a blessing. Listen to these verses. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter has a lot to say about this. 1 Peter 4.14, he says, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 1 Peter 3.14, Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And this is, this is a great verse. Listen to this one in 2 Corinthians 4.17. This one has just it's been on my mind all week. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Man, that's an awesome verse. As uninstinctual as it may sound, opposition to our faith brings blessing. Opposition blesses us by making us more like Christ. We begin to pay a cost for our faith, pay a cost for God's mission, his gospel, just as Jesus paid a cost on the cross. Opposition blesses us, if we look back to those verses in Matthew, by giving us a reward in heaven, in eternity. Opposition blesses us by growing us spiritually, just like lifting weight with more and more opposition grows muscle. Opposition to our faith is going to grow it. Whether we avoid the tension of opposition through conforming, fighting, or withdrawing, each removes us from the blessing that opposition brings. Don't miss the blessing of opposition. Don't miss it. So I think the end question is, what is the healthy response to opposition? Well, we've, we've faced it. We well face it more. What's the healthy response? Well, Jesus doesn't give us a seven-step process here in these verses. And there isn't one in Scripture because we face it in such remarkably different ways. But if we were to try to create a few guidelines about how we should react to all opposition, I think we'd want to say at least four things. First, clearly identify ourselves as followers of Jesus. Second, respond in humility, peace, love. Third, Seek opportunities to share the gospel even as you're being opposed. And fourth, we've got to be more interested in winning the person than the argument. Clearly identify ourselves as a follower of Jesus. Respond in humility, peace, and love. Seek opportunities to share the gospel and be more interested in winning the person 
than the argument. But I want to leave you with one question, all right? I want you to imagine something with me just for a moment. I want you to imagine that you're in a courtroom and you're on trial. The judge is trying to decide if you're a Christian or not. Can he find you guilty? The evidence that's being used is how you've handled opposition to your faith. Would there be enough evidence to convict you as a follower of Jesus? Or would there be no evidence because you've conformed to look exactly like the world? Or would there be evidence brought against you that sa- or for you that says, hey, this person fought so venomously against his enemies, her enemies, there's no way they follow the Prince of Peace. Or would there be no non-believers to take the witness stand because you've withdrawn to such a degree that none know about your faith. In the face of opposition, that sort of opposition of being on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? There was for Sada and Malad. There has been for millions of Christians throughout the ages. Would there be for us? There should be. Because we should each expect opposition to our faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you for this morning. Thank you can come to worship you. Thank you that we can learn even from very uh, challenging passages, Lord. We pray over the next week that you would prepare our hearts. The next months, you would prepare our hearts for that next time we face opposition. That we would respond in love. That, that we would identify ourselves as a follower of you, Lord. That we respond in humility and peace that you would work through us to share the gospel even in those hard moments and that we'd be so interested in the person standing in front of us opposing us, Lord. Prepare our hearts to do that. Keep us from negative reactions to opposition. Thank you for this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. On the same night that Jesus spoke these words that we've been studying this morning, he also gave the first communion. And so we remember that on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. All those who trust Christ Jesus as their savior are welcome at the table of South Suburban. As you come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup. And then as you head back to your seats, you can give of your offerings and tithes as just a part of your good and faithful worship and the baskets on the side aisles. If there was something in here, in this, this, this challenging passage that struck you, and you're just thinking through faith, thinking through this Jesus, and you've never uh, really had a good conversation about him, never made a decision about who he is, and you'd like to talk about that this morning. I'd love to talk with you right down here up front. It's just people come forward for communion. And as we all come this morning, we proclaim the good news of the gospel, that Christ has died, 
Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Will you come?
I stand. 